may be seated. Okay, I have a hand in the back. <laughs> yes, Naomi. Um, I would like number four in the brown hymnal. Number four in the brown hymnal. Why number four in the brown hymnal? Absolutely. He is. All right. Number four in the brown.
Our scripture reading is Matthew 18. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. That's 1526 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 18. Please stand. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 10. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cause, oh, sorry, back up again. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. ask that the Lord would bless his reading. Thank you. We take your red hymnal this time, the red trinity, and turn to number 391. 391 in the red.
for next week. Okay, next week. They're talking about the camp report. Our scripture text this morning is Matthew 18. And in our last study, we considered Jesus as both the creator and the savior. Probably a lot of times we don't think of Christ as the creator. We We think of God the Father as the creator. But you know the scripture talks about Jesus being the creator, being there in the first days of dawn. He was there. See, so, well, where do you see that? Well, it's the word, word, W-O-R-D. In the beginning was the word, right? And the word was with God, and the word was God. 
Through him all things were created. Nothing was created that with, without him. So we don't normally think of Jesus as the W-O-R-D, but the scripture defines him as that because he is what God speaks. It's done. It's, it's not just a word, but it's the power of the creative word. Yeah, amen. So uh, it's a little bit of a different concept than we normally think of Jesus, but it is indicated in John's gospel that he was there, right there, in Genesis 1-1 and following at the creation. We noted that Adam was Jesus' perfect work. And we learned that he was, as I already said, present at creation's dawn. He was the active agent by whom the universe and everything in it was created. And he is every bit the creator as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So when Adam sinned, he sinned against Christ. He sinned against Christ as creator. He bought into the same lie with which Satan had deceived himself. Namely, that the creature could become the creator or master of his own destiny. That he didn't have to act upon God's say-so, but he could decide for himself his own course of life. And you remember how the curses followed as a result of that. As we look at the creator as savior, we learned, however, that the curse is not the end. Within the curse, God made a promise that while true that Satan would bruise Jesus' heel, Jesus would crush his head and destroy his poisonous death upon humanity. Creation awaits its restoration in Christ. What I'm saying is that the seed of the woman wins. She wins. He, she wins. In death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, she wins. And all who repent of their sin and believe in the atoning work of Christ are given new life and become new creations in Christ. Death loses its sting and eternal life is secured. Now today's study asks the question, and this is asked by people in society all the time, how difficult is it to be saved? Is it difficult? Is it complicated? Do people have to have a college degree to comprehend the gospel call? Must they figure out the theology of the message before responding to it in faith? These are questions we need to ask. The point I'm bringing out in today's sermon is that it is a coming simply to Christ in faith. There are so many who experience struggle in coming to Christ. Perhaps that was you. Perhaps you know of somebody in your family. It cannot be denied that for some, coming to faith in Jesus as Savior is a long protracted process Fraught with delay and doubts and fears and retreats, two steps forward, one step back, sometimes. We learned in our study of Pilgrim's Progress that there are impediments 
on the road to the celestial city, mostly of our own sinful doing. We do not respond quickly nor simply to the promises of the gospel. In other words, we make things difficult by our musings. Let me suggest to you a number of impediments that then hinder people. I think the biggest one is ignorance of the gospel. Ignorance of the gospel. What it is and how one may hold to it and have its promises become part of their own lives. Despite the copious volumes in Christian bookstores and a plenitude of gospel preachers who, like Paul, can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, Romans 1.16. Despite that, nonetheless, it remains that people run here and there over hill and dale hoping to find what's right under their nose. In their panic, they say with embittered Job, if only I could find him. If only I could find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. Job 23, verse 3. But as you know with Job, so with us, God was right there all the time. It's ignorance, however, that makes the search protracted. The truth is what Paul preached to the Athenians. Speaking of God's formation of the nations... Paul writes, God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Acts 17, verse 27 and 28. What is he saying? Paul is saying the creator is close to his creation. He's close to it. He upholds it by the word of his power, the scripture says. God is not hiding. God is as near as your next breath. And so Isaiah exhorts us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. But I say it again, that ignorance is an impediment because people are looking for God in all the wrong places. They don't know where to look. They also come in terms of preconceived assumptions. That'll really mess you up. If you come to the whole idea of salvation with your own plan, and you're asking God to somehow rubber stamp your plan, people have a lot of assumptions. For example, some merge the thought of religion and Christianity. I hear it all the time on Fox News when they are discussing the social agenda 
of the conservative candidates. Some conservatives are committed Christians and in belief and in practice, but the pundits, the pundits speak of their religion. Well, religion is what men invent in place of Christianity. Religion assumes that God is to be approached through ceremony and ritual. Sadly, sadly, even Israel came to this while they were living in gross sin, sin so detestable to God that God refused to hear their prayers any longer. That's pretty bad. Let me read it for you from Isaiah. Now God, uh, through Isaiah, is speaking to Israel, but look, listen to how he addresses them. He's talking to his people now. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Ooh. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked of you all of this? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moons, festivals, and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. And even if you offer many prayers, I will not lessen. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah 1, verses 10 and following. What an indictment upon Israel, the people of God. And what is evident here is, excuse me, is that what started out as obeying the law of God with regard to bringing animal sacrifices to make atonement for sin, this all had deteriorated into mere ritual. Personal faith in and love for God flew out the window. All the while they kept the ceremonies. See, they assumed that so long as the rituals continued, they proved their fidelity to God. But their faith had become a religion. Their obedience was hollow. It was empty. There was no heart in it. And then on the other side of the coin, there was blood on their hands. He says so. The important matters of righteousness and caring for the indigent and widows and being honest in their business dealings, they became a moot point. They altered religion and Christianity for being a followers of God in faith. Very religious, yes. But that's where it ended. 
So they assumed because they went through the rituals that they were okay with God. Secondly, another assumption is that God's salvation is like the mixture of cream and milk we call half and half. Part law, part grace, part their own effort, part the work of Christ. Yet Paul tackles this head on when he writes, At the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if it's by grace, it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see, and ears so they could not hear, so so too this very day. Romans 11, verses 5 through 8. Salvation, as I taught a week ago, is not a partnership. With you doing your part and God doing his, and that equals salvation. No, salvation is all of grace from start to finish. But if people are raised in a religious environment in which they are told there's something for them to do, the refreshing fragrance of Free grace will be masked, and it may be a long, long time before Peter's exhortation takes root. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 3 verse 19. Preconceived assumptions are an impediment to coming simply to Christ. What we think salvation is, is not necessarily what it really is, as stated by God in his word. Thirdly, defective or poor teaching is a third impediment. One danger here, I think, is the blending of thought in the name of being gracious the thought of believer and unbeliever. We don't want to be so bold as to say that so-and-so is lost and bound for hell, nor do we want to appear to be arrogant by asserting that so-and-so is saved and bound forever. The first thought is viewed as being too harsh, and the second is being as being too presumptuous. So what we end up with are the tweenies. Tweenies. That is, people who are not quite lost and in need of the Savior and those who are not quite saints and assured of glory. It's assumed that this is a better place to be than in the state of complete and utter alienation with God. May I say that Israel of old tried this twilight religion, the tweeny state? Let me read it for you. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, king of Judah, in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 25 years. 
In everything he walked in the ways of his father Asa, and he did not stray from them. Asa was a godly king, by the way. He did, I'm reading scripture, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, uh uh-uh. Look out for the howevers. The high place, however, were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. And Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel, who was the king of Israel at this time. It was wicked King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Whoa. 1 Kings 22, verse 41 and following. And you know God sent the armies of Aram, Assyria, in to capture and exile Israel's northern kingdom. And one would have thought that years in exile under the rule of godless kings would have cured their half-and-half religion. But here's what we read. Then the king of Assyria came, gave gave this order. Make one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. Sounds good so far, right? Hmm? So, one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Wonderful. Nevertheless, oh, here it comes again. Another one of these howevers. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. They worshipped the Lord. Yay! But they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. Not so good. They worship the Lord, but they also, I'm still reading scripture. They worship the Lord, but they also serve their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from the, which they had been brought. 2 Kings 17, 27 and following. Oh. We'll just do it both. <laughs> we'll worship Jehovah with one breath and Baal or Ashtaroth or Dagon, whoever with the uh, the next breath. We won't offend anybody. We'll just be worshipers of all the gods. Well, poor teaching, and in particular the modern day teaching that salvation is a combination of exercising one's free will choices along with becoming recipients of God's grace, is an impediment to coming simply to Christ. You know, as long as a person stands with one foot in self-righteousness and the other foot in Christ's imputed righteousness, it'll be difficult to bring men to grace alone and faith alone. They can never be sure that the quantity of their own righteous deeds is enough to please God or that the quality of their righteousness is sufficiently holy to match the perfection that God demands. 
Do I do enough? And what I do, is it holy enough? Let me tell you something. God does not accept tweeny, on-the-fence people. So where'd you get that? Well, let me read it for you from the scriptures. Revelation 3.16. Christ says to the church of Laodicea, God said, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. No tweeny state. Well, I, I, I do a little bit. No. God says it's me or it's nothing. You want to be saved? It's me and me alone. I'm not sharing my glory with some idol God you have in your tent. Fourthly, lack of humility is an impediment to coming simply to Christ. I think this is a biggie. If I mean, if I were listing these impediments by dominance, I think I would list pride first. We say, what are you saying? I'm saying this. We don't like the idea of being saved as a charity case. We want to have a hand in it. What is more, the world is almost, in almost every difficulty of life, tells us we must have a hand in it. And that when we apply ourselves, we can do anything that we set our minds to. Aren't we told that all the time? Kids are taught this in part. Of the self-esteem profile, which is part of every school curriculum. Schools are ever moving away from a grading system because they don't want the kids to get an F and feel bad for failing. When therefore we come up against a God who will not allow our pride a speck of importance or ability, we fight back, we resist. We protest that we are as good as the next man as though goodness had merit with God. And when God says, as he does say, let me read it for you, all have turned away, they've altogether become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one, Romans 3 verse 12, we find ourselves in opposition to the God whose salvation in heaven we're hoping to win. Can't we take his word on it? No, we don't want to take his word on it because his word on it is humbling. Some ways very demoralizing. We chafe at a sovereign God who says, and I'm reading scripture here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9 verse 15. The God men are willing to tolerate is the one who does not sit on a throne, but who is subject to the will of the people. A puppet prince whose reign is only viable if the people vote him in. And whose continual reign is at the discretion of his subjects. We voted you in, we can vote you out. 
Maybe that's part of our democratic socialism that we have in our country. And we brought that over into religion. I think so. You know that Jesus of most people's thinking is a pathetic wimp. He is. He is a sissified male figure who has been emasculated by their own arrogance and assured, assured superiority. You start talking about God being God, being sovereign and in control, and you aren't in control, and boy, you, you'll get a lot of people angry real quick. I've heard it so many times. All I had to believe, I had to believe. Whatever the gospel says, I had to believe it. Well, of course they had to believe it. But they're saying it that way, meaning that their faith and their repentance is of their doing. I was so wise to have faith. I was so right to repent. But when you look in the scriptures, both faith and repentance are talked about by God as his gift to his people. Well, if it's his gift, it wasn't there. Now, you see, we're defining faith and repentance as different than the kind of crazy definitions we hear from preachers sometimes. Well, you know what faith is. Faith means you sit down on a chair and you have the faith that it's going to hold you and not drop you on the floor. No, that's not faith, folks. That's knowledge. Why? Because you've sat on the chair a thousand times and it never dropped you on the floor. That's how. Listen to God as he speaks in Psalm 50. Psalm 50. He says, Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to receive my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother, slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. And you thought I was altogether like you. But I will, I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider you, this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show the salvation of God. Psalm 50, verse 14 and following. I love the statement right in the middle of all those verses. You thought I was altogether like you. Do you know that idolatry, every idol religion in the world, that's the premise. That's the flaw right there. You thought that I was altogether like you. Short, sweet, what they did is they took God and they made God in their own image. And then... Oh, yeah, they could bow down to that God. And they did. Hold on to your pride and you'll never come to Christ. 
You'll never be shown salvation from the Lord. Number five, belief in exceptionalism is another impediment to coming simply to Christ. Belief in exceptionalism. There are some people who view themselves as exceptions to the rule. You probably know some people like this. God says, all of sin, all fall short of the glory of God. And they answer, not me. Not me. Again, God says, as it is written, there is no one is righteous, not even one. Romans 3 verse 10. And these people say, that doesn't apply to me. I live a good life. God says again, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Romans 3 verse 11. And there are people who answer, I'm a seeker. I'm here, ain't I? Ready and willing to learn. I go to church on Sunday. In other words, whatever God says, in terms of his insight and his evaluation, these people think of themselves as the exception to the rule. I can say that even Peter saw himself as the exception. Jesus took a considerable amount of time the night of his crucifixion to warn Peter of his coming great temptation that he would face and his denial of Christ that was impending. What was Peter's response? Let me read it for you. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I Never will. Matthew 26, verse 33. What is he saying? Lord, please, please don't list me with these other guys. They may turn their back on you, but not me. I am the exception. I'm the exception. You all know that in Peter's case, he repented of his arrogance. And he learned what others already knew, that what God makes a statement of our spiritual state, that statement is always true and there are no exceptions. All have sinned, all fall short, none seek, none are righteous, none are good. It is our utter bankruptcy of moral aptitude that demands a Savior other than ourselves. A Savior outside ourselves who can deal completely with our sin and our failures. And that's what people have to come to. But um, it's, a hard, it's a hard road to hoe for a lot of people. This is, the, this is their great impediment. You mean, I, you mean Pastor, you mean I'm, I really am so bankrupt spiritually that I can't, I can't even come? Yeah. Those who consider themselves the exception will exception their soul all the way to hell. Accept, accept, accept. I'm different, I'm different, I'm different. Not me, not me, not me.
There are dozens of impediments to coming simply to Christ. But at least give these five serious thoughts. Ignorance of the gospel, preconceived assumptions, namely that religion and Christianity are the same. They're not. Tweeny salvation, well, like half law and half grace, we put them together and I can get saved. Poor teaching, lack of humility, and number five, belief that you constitute some kind of an exception to God's rule. God can say all these things, but it's not me he's talking about. Yeah, it's you that he's talking about. It's me that he's talking about. He's boxing us in. God is boxing us in to Jesus Christ. You need a Savior, and it's this Savior. You cannot save yourself. You are not that good. God is not pleased with your goodness and your righteous deeds. They are deficient. They will damn you all the way to hell. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to show that to us from God's Word. Now, having said that, what are some of the non-essentials for salvation? It's good that we consider these as well, because there's a lot of poor preaching out there. Non-essentials for salvation. Number one, you don't have to have feelings of despair. Well, it is true that in presenting the gospel to sinners, we must call on them to turn away from their sin as they turn to Christ for forgiveness. It's not necessary that they experience utter despair. You know what despair is? When despair sets in, hope takes flight. People have to have hope. That's what belief is. They have to believe that God will honor his promises when he speaks in the gospel. Despair arises from unbelief. They do not trust. They confess what they cannot see. They're in a sea of their own making, tossed to and fro without a compass. So are we saying that unless people feel hopeless, they can't be saved? Well, how absurd is that? We want them to have hope. We want to hold out to them the hope, the encouragement that's found in the gospel. The gospel promises hope. And it calls on sinners to respond, not to sit in idle weariness, stymied by despair. Jesus Christ is held up in the gospel as the one who satisfies God as an atoning sacrifice. I mean, if Jesus satisfies God... He satisfies me. If God accepts his cross work, shall I not accept it too? Some people are beaten severely by morbid and unbiblical thoughts, either of their own doing or Satan's doing or poor preaching by men of good intentions. and None of it's good. What I'm saying is that some people see themselves as such horrible sinners 
that even God could not forgive them. And others think even if he could, he won't because they're not numbered with the elect. That's another error. Why is that a wrong one? Because the sacred things belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And you and I must not live our lives second-guessing God's decrees. So whatever your dark thoughts about God and salvation, all these are to be buried in the blood of Jesus' forgiveness. Sin cannot aid grace. Despair, unbelief, cannot be a prerequisite to faith and trust. Feelings of despair are non-essential for salvation. Again, secondly, fear, weeping, anguish, inner contemplation. Not necessary. I do not doubt that many Christians are so after experiencing one or more of these great difficulties and vexations of the soul. But there are equally many people who are Christians who have never experienced these things. What things? The ones I just read. Fear, weeping, anguish, inner... Paul could say of Timothy, who had been tutored by his godly mother and grandmother, from infancy, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. From infancy. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. John the Baptist. Samuel. Would be other examples. And so it is for many children raised in Christian homes. For whom church attendance and gospel preaching was just part of their lives day in and day out. When Jesus was preached as Savior, they went to him in faith. There and then, they trusted him as completely as they would the word of their own honest parents. They were forgiven. They continued to live for the Lord to this very day. That was my experience in a Christian home. Others in the same vein cannot tell you the day or the hour of their salvation because it was so it was so natural so devoid of stress or trauma that they cannot put a date on it but again today they're living holy lives they're serving Jesus in the church so we dare not tell such people that they are not alive because they don't know their birthday Say, well, who would say that? You know, I've heard actual heard preachers say this. If you don't know the day that you're saved, you're not saved. I've heard him preach that. It's the nature of sinful man to delight in intricacies and to scorn the simple and the naive. Some make simple truth hard. They make easy work difficult. 
And I think it's a pride thing. Good example of this is Naaman, the commander of and king of Aram's army. Aram in the Old Testament. He was the commander of the king's army, but he was also a leper. Ooh. A Jewish servant girl. She's not even named. No one knows her name. But a Jewish servant girl informed Naaman's wife She's going through proper channels, you see. She informed Naaman's wife of Elisha, the prophet of God, who, li- who resided in Israel, who she thought could help Naaman. Long story short, Naaman went to meet Elisha, laden down with gifts of gold and silver and clothing and donkeys with this and camels with that and... Naaman arrived outside Elisha's house or tent, I should say. But Elisha did not even leave his house to speak to Naaman. He sent a messenger instead, saying, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. (laughs) Think about this. 1 Kings 5, verse 10. Well, what a firestorm that created. We read, but Naaman went away and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in one of them and be cleansed? So he turned off away and went off in a rage. 2 Kings 5, verse 11 and 12. Not exactly a good first time meeting, right? Naaman's servant, again, unnamed person. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, you see how polite she is? She's being respectful. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing... Would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? 2 Kings 5 or 13. Here's a teenager, probably a teenager, young servant has more wisdom than the wisdom of the ages. Thankfully, reason prevailed. Naaman went, he washed, he came back healed. But not only so, he became a believer and he took his newfound faith back to Aram where he worshipped God from that day on, the scripture says. Say, well, what's the point? Well, he made the simple path to his healing difficult. His pride made it difficult. He wanted something. Give me something hard to do. I'm a commander of an army. Or give me something more dignified than dipping in the muddy Jordan River. 
that water's dirty. Who wants to go down in that? I'll get an ear infection. Fear and weeping and anguish and sleepless nights are not essential for salvation. Just obey. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's my last point, that God calls sinners to childlike, get it now, childlike faith. Yes, Jesus demands change in our adult thinking. Our text brings before us something which is all too common among believers, but something none of us would admit. Verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We might answer piously, well, that's obvious. Jesus is the greatest. That's quite true. But the context demonstrates that the disciples were thinking of those who were the subjects of the kingdom. They were talking about the Lord of the kingdom. So they were talking about who among us disciples is the greatest. That was not the first time this came up. It was a nagging question that followed the disciples into the Passover celebration the night of Jesus' crucifixion. We read in Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. This is crucifixion night. And Jesus answered, verse 3, said, I tell you the truth, unless you change... Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What could Jesus possibly mean by becoming little children? Let me ask it a different way. What characterizes little children? Well, they are naive, maybe even to the point of being gullible, right? If dad says it or mom says it, they believe it. Their experience revolves around the values taught in that home. Again, little children are generally ignorant, but along with that, they're eager to learn They want to experience life to the fullest. They have a sweet spot in the heart of Christ. On another occasion, the disciples tried to keep mothers from bringing their children to Jesus. Remember that one? And when Jesus saw this, let me read it for you. He was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. Mark 10, verse 14 and following. 
the mighty Savior has a heart for the little ones. Observe, he says, receive the, chil- receive the kingdom like a little child. Can children receive the kingdom? Obviously. Verse 6 of our text, these little ones who believe in me, he says, these little ones who believe in me, Children will walk the streets of gold and glory when the intellectuals and the atheists will be banned to the confines of hell. Which will it be for you? You must change. We must change. And if a child can enter, so can you. And then note two, Jesus' intolerance of pride. Look at verse four and five. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Wow. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, yet he humbled himself And became one of us. In context here, Jesus talks about the hand and the foot that causes us to sin. And the eye that does the same. And if it's your hand, he says, our abilities to do can be compromised by sin. If it's our feet, it's our mobility that takes us down paths we should not go. Various evil paths. If it's the eyes, our insight, our knowledge is defective. All of them symbolic of human achievement in which men take great pride. I see, I can do, I can go on my own. I don't need God. But of the child, insight is non-existent. Abilities are woefully inadequate. Mobility needs dad's hand to safely cross the street. And God's people are dependent like that. I'm dependent like that. You are dependent like that. We have had to swallow our pride and lean solely on Christ and his power. And if we don't, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think pride is the great impediment of all. And if you despise such humility, look at verse 10. See to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying they always have an audience with God through those angelic messengers of whom the writer of Hebrews speaks, are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who inherit, will inherit his salvation? Wow. Hebrews 1 verse 14. You should have it so good. And you can if you will come to Christ in humility and in childlike faith. 
God sends his angels to minister to those who are the elect, those who will come and believe and make sure that you get from it this wicked world to the kingdom of righteousness. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You did it all. You did it all. You did it all. You did it all. Nothing but the blood of Jesus washes away our sin, our pride, our arrogance, our inabilities, whatever else. We become impediments to coming to faith and faith and repentance in Christ. Lord, please be with us. Be with us. Draw us to yourself. Where we have failed you in faith, grant us repentance. And grant us faith that we won't do it again. Again, I bring up Peter in the text that we saw. He went out and he wept bitterly. (laughs) For a few moments, he hated himself. He realized what a fool he had been. Though all others forsake you, I never will said Peter, but he did. We need to realize that his salvation was always of God's grace. And we need to realize that too. We're not so hot spiritually that we can boast like that. Forgive us when we have boasted or when we've just relied upon what we think is our own strength, our own spirituality, instead of trusting Jesus each day. Bless us, we ask, O Lord, with your presence. Grant us some of that humility, that Lord is so evident of your life. The Lord of glory humbled himself and became a man that he might become the Savior of men. Thank you, dear Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 471. sing 471 in the brown Please go.
course, the whole idea of the cross is what? It's the death of Christ, but also where Paul says crucified with Christ. We got to die to self-righteousness and pride and arrogance and all those things that we want to pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good. God loves us because I'm pretty good. No, he doesn't. He loves us because Christ is pretty good. He's great good. Yeah, amen. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is why my father loves me, because no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This authority I have received from my father. I can envision God in glory saying, who will go? Who will go? Who will go? And Jesus piping up and saying, I will go. I will go. And so it came and became the Savior of sinners. What a wonderful Savior we do have. And we should uh, glory in Him every day. Be thankful every day. Well, tonight we're not going to have a service. Not because uh, the weather's bad or anything. It's because I'm bad. <laughs> it's about all I can do strength-wise to, to do one sermon right now. So maybe the Lord will strengthen me as the days go by. But I do dialysis in the morning. I've already had one dialysis this morning, early morning. And I have another dialysis tonight, so I'm, down, I'm up to two dialysis a day just to keep my blood clean. And uh, it, when it, as it dirties up with impurities and so forth, I get weaker and weaker and tireder and tireder through the day. So I've had one dialysis, like I said, by 6 o'clock I'll be needing another one. So continue to pray for me. I'm thankful that I can still preach. And I'm thankful that uh, you, <laughs> you're being faithful in coming out and supporting the work of God here. Let's uh, pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Yes, you're wonderful. And you take care of our every need, no matter what it is. Thank you for su- your sustaining grace. I'm not the only one sick here this morning. <clears throat> there are others who are sick. We've had some some of that already this morning, difficulties. But Lord, <clears throat> our life in this sinful world is difficult. But the beauty of it is is that you're the Savior and that you take care of your people. No matter what comes our way, you're right there. We don't have to go looking for you. You're right there supplying all of our needs in Christ. Thank you for doing that. Bless and honor the word to our hearts. May we be encouraged. May we be sustained. May we grow in grace in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.